Welcome to the Candle Tales podcast and to the new series of superstitions and sewing-related stories. This episode will be Surika telling you about McCarthy's Banshee. Now, this whole series, a mini-series, will be talked about on Iahauna, the night before November, also known as Halloween, when we entertained a guest from Mythical Ireland, Anthony Murphy, and he'll be talking to us about all of these superstitions in Irish mythology and folklore. Support for all of these podcasts, these series and the post shows come from our Patreon supporters. Thank you very much for that. If you want to help out, throw us a few quid, go on over to Patreon. Before that though, we have this story to tell you and Surika recreated elements of the Banshee from various sources and found a tale set with the McCarthys. And that's all I'll tell you for now. Well, Surika, go on, tell us a tale. They say the Banshee keens for death. That scream of grief. A cry that's primal and almost savage. And the Banshee The woman of the she who cries for death. She cries before a death and not after it. But she doesn't cry for anyone. She doesn't cry for everyone. She only cries for certain families, they say. The great old families. The descendants of the High Kings. The O'Neills. The Kavanaghs. The McCarthys. And whether it is a warning or an omen, whether it is for grief or for triumph, she cries, who can say? The ways of the good folk are not known by mortals, not for us to know. Many, many years ago, A silence hung over the McCarthy estate. The heir of the family was dying. Young Charles McCarthy. And he was very young. He was not yet twenty. And he was leaving no heir behind him. And his mother did not know what she would do. The family's fortune was at stake. Charles himself had come into his inheritance very young when his father had passed away. Not as untimely as it looked like Charles was going to die, but young enough for it to be counted tragic. And the effect that had on young Charles McCarthy was an effect that was felt throughout the whole family and all their tenants and all their servants and all their dependents. Because Charles McCarthy came into his fortune at an age when he was young and reckless and had nothing to hold him back from the worst excesses of human nature. 
The law in the country was not for curtailing the wants of the rich and powerful. The law was for keeping the peasantry in line. And with no father to take him aside and have a stern word, well, young Charles fell into bad company. Other rich, idle young men with no one to tell them what to do and no consequences to any of their actions. And they caused havoc. They ran amok around the countryside. They drank every tavern dry, frequented the brothels of Ireland, the best in the British Empire, seduced young girls of good family, ruining them. And there was nothing and no one to stand in their way. Charles's best friend was James Ryan. And James enjoyed the gambling and James enjoyed the vice. James did not much like frequenting the brothels. James liked seducing young girls, ruining them, as it was known back then. Because a girl who spent the night with James Ryan, well, she would never marry well. She would never be employed in a decent home. She would have one option and one option only. And he liked that thought, that a woman would throw her life away for a night with him. And he and Charles often discussed it. The relative merits of a professional woman or an innocent girl, which was more fun for the evening and which meant more, which had more of a savour, of a relish to it. They were best friends. The two of them, equally matched in temperament, they even looked alike, similar in stature, the same dark hair. And James, he was also waiting on this dark day in the McCarthy household. And Mrs McCarthy watched her son struggling with a fever that looked like it was going to kill him. Indeed, the doctor had already left, pronouncing that he would be dead before dawn and riding away, declaring there was no more to be done. All the servants and the tenants had gathered in the yard and they were only waiting on the word of Mrs McCarthy to begin their own keening, to start the mourning and the funeral rites. So heavy that some even whispered, that was a good sign. None could hear the keening of the banshee. That omen of death had not arrived. But there was little hope. Things looked dire indeed. Charles lay there, barely breathing, his skin ashen and grey and his mother watched his chest carefully for the slight rise and fall of his breath. And then she thought it stopped. And then he gasped, and his eyes flew open. When Charles sat up, he told his mother that he had seen a vision, 
He had stood before a judge and that judge had shown him every ill thing he'd ever done. Every wanton cruelty, every life he'd ruined, every slight, large and small, was laid out before him. And that stern judge turned to him and said, You have three years. Now, Mrs. McCarthy dismissed this as delirium. A fever dream brought on by his brush with death. But she didn't like to argue too hard against his vision because, prompted by it, Charles McCarthy became a reformed character. He gave up his drinking, he gave up his gambling, he gave up all his wicked ways, and he came back to manage the estate, investing in it, investing in its people, improving the land, improving their quality of life, doing his job. And along with it, improving the fortunes of the family. But he never let go of that idea that he had three years from the day that he woke up. And that he would die while still a young man before his 23rd birthday. He also never let go of his former companions. He didn't preach to them. He told them his story if they asked, but he didn't try to lecture them about their behaviour or suggest they needed to reform like he had. He entertained them when they came to visit. And James Ryan was a frequent visitor to the McCarthy estate. And part of that was for his friend Charles, but part of it was because James had his eye on a girl. Her name was Bridie, and she was the prettiest girl on the estate. Perhaps even the prettiest girl in Tipperary, if not all of Ireland. James certainly told her that she was. But Bridie was not a stupid girl, and she knew her worth. And she knew what sort of a character James Ryan was. And she was not about to give up her whole life for the dubious pleasure of an evening in his company. And so she resisted him and she put him off. But every time James came to visit Charles, he brought her little presents, little flowers, little ribbons, little gifts. He told her that he'd been thinking of her all the time he was away told her that she was the equal of any beauty in Dublin or London or Paris. And she wasn't quite sure if he'd ever been to Paris, but Dublin and London both sounded so exotic to her. And she knew that it was foolish to think that the son of an earl would seriously consider tying himself to a girl like her but her heart could not help wanting it. And as time went by, years even, and his attention and his affections did not wane, she found herself softening towards her suitor. Now, in the meantime, the only blight on Mrs. McCarthy's happiness 
Well, there were two. One was that her son would not let go of this persistent idea that he was drawing ever closer to his death, as foretold in his fevered dream. But the other was that, as a result of this, he refused to marry. Charles would not take a wife. And Mrs. McCarthy desperately wanted to see her son settled and happy. And she was not the only mother of a young man who wanted to see her son settled and married. And so Mrs. McCarthy put her head together with Mrs. Ryan, James's mother, and they began to plan. A suitable girl was found for James. And the co-conspirators decided that the wedding would be held on the McCarthy estate. And perhaps with the celebration of the wedding, coinciding with the three-year anniversary of Charles's illness, Charles might get over this delusion and let go of it at last and agree himself to settle down with a nice young girl. Now the wedding preparations began. The whole household was thrown into a flurry of activity. But no one knew on the McCarthy estate who it was that James Ryan was getting married to. No one had heard her name. Bridie was devastated at the news that James was going to be married. She'd never spent the night with him. She'd never let her reputation be ruined in that way. But she had grown fond of him and she had begun to almost believe the promises he made to her. And so when James arrived the week before the wedding, Bridie was already keyed up in high dudgeon and at first she would not speak to him at all but he cornered her at last and he said to her Bridie don't you see you're my bride to be I've convinced my mother and I'm going to marry you in front of everyone right here on the estate where you've lived your whole life And when she heard that, that all her dreams were coming true, Bridie let go of her resistance. And James Ryan ruined another girl. And the next day, Jane Osborne, his bride-to-be, arrived with her retinue to make ready for the wedding. Bridie could see it in the whispers and the stares of the other people on the estate that there was no secret here. Everyone knew what she'd done and everyone knew that she'd sealed her fate. And she knew that she could not stay. It wouldn't be long before she was put out. She decided to leave on her own terms. The night before the wedding day, she could not bear to stay for the wedding feast she gathered up all her belongings and got ready to run in hopes of finding a place where no one knew her name and no one knew the name of James Ryan. 
and perhaps she could start afresh. The night was dark and cold, and it seemed like a storm was brewing. The air was heavy and thick and too hot for the time of year. And on her way out, as Bridie could sense the darkness and the thick heat. On an impulse, she crept into the master's study and she stole one of his hunting pistols and she tucked it under her petticoat. And then she ran out into the night. And it was a dark and a terrible night indeed. The roads were pitch black and the moon was covered by clouds and that wind went whistling round and round and she could hear the branches clattering together. It sounded like someone was clapping their hands. Every step she took she felt like someone was walking along the road beside her, just on the other side of the hedgerow. She felt that if she strained her ears she could hear the footsteps of another woman shadowing her steps. But the wind howled so that she couldn't hear it clearly. And the moon was hidden and it was so, so dark. And then she came to a break in the hedgerow. And the clouds parted. And the moon shone down. And Bridie saw. Through a gap in the hedge stood a woman. Stark white hair and stark white shift and the moon making her seem whiter still that woman who had been keeping pace with her on the other side of the hedgerows and she opened her mouth and she let out a keen of such terrible grief and longing it seemed as if her heart was breaking and she raised her hand And she pointed back the way Bridie had come, back to the McCarthy estate. And Bridie recognised her, the Banshee, the Banshee calling down an omen of death on one of the gentry. And Bridie thought she understood the message from the other world. So she turned around. She made her way back to the McCarthy estate. And she found a place in the gardens where no one would see her. And she had a clear view of the house. And she hid. And she waited. Early the next morning, Bridie saw the bridegroom, Jack Ryan, come out for a morning walk. And she lifted her pistol and she shot him through the heart. And in the flash of the muzzle as she felt it recoil, she realised two things at the same time that Jack Ryan and Charles McCarthy really did look very alike and that the Banshee does not keen for the Ryan family. 
they do say she keens for the McCarthys. And three years to the day, from the morning he woke up from his terrible fever, Charles McCarthy breathed his last breath. Gurav Mila Magut, and thank you for listening. This was Soraka telling you the story of McCarthy's Banshee. We will be joined very soon to talk about this story by Anthony Murphy of Mythical Ireland. A wealth of wisdom this man has, and we thoroughly enjoyed talking to him previously. We pre-recorded it so we could release it on Iha November Eve. So hopefully you'll be able to tune into that or listen back in your own time. This podcast was produced and edited by Oshin Ryan with music from the very same man. Again, as I've mentioned before, all support for these podcasts come from our Patreon supporters, patreon.com forward slash candlelittales and help us out with whatever they can. If you can't afford anything, don't worry, your ears and your attention were enough payment for us, Gurdmilamagat, and stay safe in this spooky time that we're in. Hopefully we might see you at a live show coming soon. Check out our social media for details or candlelittales.ie where you can see all of our live gigs listed. Gurdmila and see you again.